Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolich, and today's guest is Dr. Christopher Willard. He is a clinical psychologist and also educational consultant with a passion for mindfulness. Chris shares approaches of bringing mindfulness practice both formal and informal into our own lives how to do so in the in the education space and also as parents i found this very informative and certainly feel a little bit inspired of bringing some additional mindfulness practice into my life so i hope you feel the same after this enjoy chris a warm welcome and a big thank you to take some time to come onto the show and talk to us all about mindfulness. I know this is a big passion of yours and uh, particularly around the educational sphere. I wanted to pick your brain and give our audience an opportunity to, to, to hear more about that because we have lots of listeners, listeners who have got kids um, or you know, are, are in that space around you know, working with younger persons as well. So welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here virtually in Australia. And, uh, <laughs> Person, but it's it's great to meet you and yeah this should be fun fantastic chris i'm not really sure where to start because i've got so many questions and, and and i like to use a bit of a, a conversational uh, approach but uh, maybe we can start with a little bit of that normal you know how did you get into this in, into this space of, of combining these two 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 space of mindfulness i, I know that you've practiced uh, meditation for for many years um uh, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about your journey as well. Yeah. And I think it's always really interesting to kind of, you know, no, no one comes by mindfulness because everything's going great in their life. And they're like, let me add some money. <laughs> you know, usually people are having a difficult time and I, <clears throat> you know, you know, just like therapy or, or spiritual practices for people, it's, you know, it's often through some challenges that they're facing. And, um, you know, for me, I guess I kind of have two, two stories about how mindfulness came into my life. One is the way it kind of came in in a formal way, which was 20 something years ago, I was at college or university, as you'd say, probably down there and um, did a couple of years of school. And then was just really struggling with depression, with anxiety, with, with uh, substance abuse <clears throat> and took some time off. Didn't feel a lot better after a year off. And my parents, you know, I was young at the time, my parents basically kind of dragged me on this mindfulness retreat that they were going on. And it was with a, a mindfulness teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh, who some of your listeners might be familiar with. And um, it, it was just totally transformative for me. Like suddenly I felt happier. I saw more connections and things. I felt more focused. I felt calmer. And, and I knew that I really wanted to start sharing this, you know, just like, you know, whenever everyone gets converted to something, right, they want to start sharing it with everybody they meet. And, um, and from there, it really took off for me. I started 
practicing more regularly and going on more retreats and eventually of course did go back to school and finished my degree and um and uh yeah and then it did a number of different things worked as a teacher for a couple of years spent a lot of time traveling um then went back to school to become a, a clinical psychologist so yeah that's that's kind of how it got started for me fantastic what was it that jumped out for you that that initial transform transformative uh, experience that sort of tapped into that i mean there, there's a lot of listeners that uh haven't practiced um or, or haven't experience what you experienced what, what was it about that initial uh experience that kind of captured captured you yeah i think <clears throat> and i think suddenly suddenly i just start to see the connections between everything which you know maybe that sounds a little bit abstract but but doing exercises like mindful eating and suddenly really seeing the way I was connected to all these other people that were part of the food chain and, and, and part of the planet just really kind of blew my mind really for lack of a better word. Um, and, uh, you know, and just, just being around other people who were just living in a, in a, such a more intentional way and had found something that to them had become really helpful or healing or, or something. Um, to me really started to, you know, the, the world started to make sense in a different way. Um, and, and my actions, you know, I, I really became aware that my actions kind of mattered what I did, what I said, um, these kinds of things had, had ripple effects outward as well as having ripple effects inward that changed how I felt. Um, and it, it, I, I just saw it and felt it and, and it was real. I think since we have, experiences or people tell us if you do this you'll feel this way or if you just change your behavior things will be better but as humans i think we some of us anyway myself at least i wanted to like feel that on like a deeper level and experience it and i think that's what that retreat experience really did for me yeah just opened my eyes to so many new possibilities and creativity and yeah yeah that was a big part of it and how did you go about beginning to 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 share that it's like that converted story where when someone when someone goes through a rehab uh you know they they, they certainly get excited whatever the, the rehab is about you know they've learned some new ideas they want to share it with the world um how did you begin to share share, share that because it's not an easy thing to 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 uh offer or to for others to understand i, I think even in the world of psychology many of us still don't appreciate uh what mindfulness is because it's that it, mindfulness is so many things uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, there, there's certainly very different ideas out there uh, maybe you can share a little bit about uh, how, how you define it or, or not even define um, describe it uh, and, and and how you began to kind of use it in your own life and and, and, and share it with others too yeah I mean to, to me it's really about you know, I, I, there's so many different definitions out there and you can say sort of, you know, paying attention to the present moment with acceptance and non-judgment and, you know, all this kind of stuff like that. You know, to me, it's kind of, I've kind of reduced it over the years to, to just sort of knowing what I'm doing as I'm doing it, <laughs> maybe even knowing why, but just kind of being a little bit more intentional and aware of everything I do and kind of informally as I bring my kind of mindful awareness to eating or walking or speaking or having a conversation you know, and then there's also more of like a formal practice of like 
sitting on a cushion and, you know, mindfully focusing on my breath, noticing when my mind wanders off, noticing where it goes, and then just gently bringing it back again and again. So there's, there's both of these. One is kind of in a formal way that we practice. I think most people, that's what they kind of envision when they hear the word mindfulness. But what's beautiful about some of these traditions, especially ones like Thich Nhat Hanh, is he really talks about like, it's all well and good. It's, it's easy, in fact, to stay mindful when you're sitting on a meditation cushion on a retreat. What's hard is to bring that same awareness to all of your interactions, to everything that you encounter, to, to everything, every action that you take in the world. And, and that's both really challenging and also to me, you know, I, I think really where it becomes transformative um, in a way. So, you know, that's, that, that kind of really hooked me about um, that particular teacher's approach. And then I was just thinking a lot about wanting to share this with other people and, and seeing how much it had been helpful for me. And again, sharing with young people, because I was also relatively young at the time. And, you know, when you're young, you're really excited, but you're also really self-conscious at the same time, right? Especially how our brains are kind of wired. But I thought back to when I was even younger and I thought back to like when I was a little kid and things like, I remember going out in, at this camp I went to and we'd go out in the woods and they'd say, let's, let's go in the woods and try to walk as silently as you can. And maybe the counselors were just trying to get us to, you know, shut up. But like, but, but my memory is like, it took so much focus and concentration. We've ever tried to walk without making a sound, right? Walk like a ninja or something, right? It takes so much focus. You, you can't think about the past or the future. You can only think about, right? Each movement, the texture and sensations of the ground. And it's really a form of mindful walking, but it's kind of a game that you play when you're a kid, right? Or we'd sit down in the forest, let's just notice all the sounds that we can hear. And, you know, looking at clouds in the sky with my dad, just watching them pass. And like all of these were really, I think of these as mindfulness before I heard the word mindfulness, <laughs> before it was as trendy as it is now, right? Like we were saying before we began, but like, you know, it's always been around this idea of, of mindfulness, right? Maybe we, there's some smarter people than us that knew what to call it, right? Now we kind of know what to call some of those experiences or something like those experiences. And that's what started to inspire me in terms of how do I share this with other people? Some people are drawn to this because it's can, you know, have these sort of exotic associations to it in some ways. Other people are, you know, not drawn to it because of the exotic associations, right? So finding, you know, especially with younger people, like how do we make this playful? How do we make this just really like straightforward? Like this is just about, you know, really focusing on each footstep as if you're trying to be really silent or something like that, right? And, and then experiences that we've probably all had, we've probably all just, you know, watched, you know, a sunset, watched the clouds go by, gazed into the embers of a fire, right? Something like that, that really kind of got us into the moment and, and really settled in, in a way that's something, something really close to mindfulness. And so we don't have to start with like, you know, all kinds of, you know, literally bells and whistles or things like that. It can be actually just how do we build on experiences that we've had where we felt really in the moment and, and create more of that in our lives. And that, that to me is how I try to think about sharing mindfulness. And you obviously wear a, wear a psychologist hat, a critical psychologist hat. Uh, there's also that educational consultant side. Uh, how did you bring those two, two together to, uh, you know, marry up, you know, mindfulness? I mean, 
obviously I appreciate the the uh, uh, clinical psychologist and mindfulness. It's, it's uh, very easy to see. But how, how did you kind of begin to integrate that into the educational side? Yeah. You know, I mean, part of it started like I was a teacher for a couple of years. You know, to be honest, I felt like I was a total disaster of a teacher. <laughs> I was in a special education residential school for adolescent sex offenders. I had no experience in education. I've been an English major. Total disaster. I had no idea what I was doing. And, um, you know, so quit that job, you know, and, and, but basically I was like seeing the therapists who worked at this place. Cause it was like a residential school. I was like, they've got a good job. like <laughs> that job. And, um, and my mom had been a psychologist too. So I was like, this is a good way to, you know, make a basic income, be helpful to people, do something that's creative. Um, but I also still really love education. And there's a lot of educators in my family, um, and, and higher and lower education. And so that's kind of when those came together. And then as I kind of stumbled into the work of sharing mindfulness with young people, it just ended up being, you know, that I would then get pulled into educational settings. So I spend a lot of my time these days, well, before the pandemic, I spent a lot of my time <laughs> traveling to different schools, doing some consultations with them around mental health, around stress management, um, around positive psychology, and of course, a lot around how do we integrate mindfulness into the classroom? How do we integrate mindfulness into the social and emotional learning curriculum? Um, and what are some ways that we can do that for educators? So the educators themselves can be happier, but also, you know, then how does that trickle down to the students? So the students are happier, enjoy school more, feeling more focused, and, and managing their stress a little bit more, because we know so many young people are just under so much stress and, and, and so much of a, a, you know, it's not just in North America, right? I, I was down in Australia. There's a, you know, huge mental health crisis among everybody actually, but particularly among um, adolescents and young adults these days. And so is there something we can do that can, you know, help prevent some of this, uh, you know, huge explosion and in, in, in mental illness that we see in young people. And to me, that's mindfulness, although there's certainly a lot of other great ways to help kids become more resilient. And what are the, some of, some of the um, uh, offerings you might provide in, in, in that school setting? Is it, is it predominantly teacher-based, that, that uh, teachers being able to facilitate practices or set up a classroom in a particular uh, way other practices how, how 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 do you go about um approaching those yeah in, in a number of different ways I, I really like to start with the leadership and the parents first um there's this 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 meme i've seen online that says never in the history of calming down has anyone ever calmed down by being told to calm down and it's like you know mindfulness is not just teaching kids how to calm down I want to be clear about that, but really like it starts with us and, and, and all of our emotions are really contagious. And, and if you've ever taught, right, or been in front of a room full of people in whatever capacity, right, you're really setting the tone for everyone's emotional state. And so it really does need to start with the principals and superintendents and administration, and then to the teachers and then the teachers are really setting the tone for the kids. Um, and then likewise, the parents, right? If the kids are getting this stuff in school, but the parents are stressing them out at home, that's not going to be so helpful either. And what's actually amazing is the research actually finds 
teachers who practice mindfulness, even if the kids never learn it, the kids are actually performing better and doing better in school and like school more. Parents who practice mindfulness, the parents get along better, the family communicates better, right? All these other benefits, even if the kids are never practicing. So it starts with the adults and then it kind of trickles down. And then, you know, some of what I, so I, I start often with the adults and then I'll often do something with the kids, depending if it's an elementary school, maybe I'll read or a primary school, you might say. Um, I might read some of the children's books I've written and have a conversation. If it's the high school kids, I might talk to them, do a, a little workshop about integrating this into things like sports, into things like music, into things like performance, right? Things that they care about right? Not just things that we adults care about. <laughs> and then kind of leaving the, the, the school with a number of tools that they can use so that, right, whether it's the kindergarten teacher, you know, doing circle time with the kids and, you know, or, or before a test or something, doing like some hot chocolate breaths, like breathe in, smell the hot chocolate, blowing out, cooling it off. right? That kind of thing. Or as kids get older, right? Finding some other breath practices, movement practices, or ways that they can maybe bring more mindful awareness to listening to their favorite music or doing a visualization or relaxation exercise before their um, soccer game or football game or cricket game or something like that, right? Or ways that they can right? Take some time to really feel their feet on the ground and be mindfully aware of sensations in their feet before they have to go and um, deliver a speech in front of the class or debate team or something. So these kinds of things to make it really practical for the students, as well as giving teachers some of these skills for here's where in the day you can think about bringing this in. Um, that's what I think helps it to stick uh, with, with young people and with the whole school too. It's almost that bringing that deliberate and intentional nature into moments uh, so that you know, over time it becomes a little bit easier to access in other contexts. So I know, for example, when I've worked with uh, sporting teams, a um, uh, particular one here, here in Canberra, there was a lot of video work, which is effectively the team watching snippets of uh, their opponents in their last match mm -hmm. and how they would um, play, which is, you know, fairly common practice in uh, professional um, uh, uh, you know, sports. And they would look and they would, and the good coaches and, and, and assistants would say, you know, this player goes out and steps 75% of the time to the right. Um, so, you know, you know, this player, you need to watch, you know, him because he will be going predominantly right. Um, and, and, and they would be very obviously deliberate, very, very intentional to pull that all apart. And, you know, that would assist obviously in, 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 in the match, but obviously, you know, also in training, uh, they would be very deliberate around how many people have to be involved, you know, into, in each tackle. And by just being deliberate and really in only very, very specific minute moments, uh, the training was, was effective in reinforcing a very specific deliberate, deliberate act. And I'm hearing the same thing here is that if we could stop uh, kids for a moment uh, or not even stop, bring kids for a moment to, to 
deliberate attention, deliberate action, um, you know, intentional practice, it, it kind of helps for, for them to be able to access that in other spaces. Is that, is that kind of somewhat there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do, I do a little bit of work around, like I've worked with some athletes over time, student athletes, and um, there's a lot of people doing that work. And I, I do think like those sort of slowing down visualizations that there's a actually psychological term for this um, we call elaborative rehearsal, which is like, you know, really if you're, if you're imagining doing something in your brain, doing the tennis swing or doing the tackle, right. Even if you're not doing it in person, you're actually still kind of building that muscle memory for yourself. Um, so finding ways to, 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 to guide athletes in something like a visualization like that can be really powerful as well as other practices like um, just getting to like a body scan where we really get to know the different parts of the body and then how, you know, where they're sore, where they're strong, right? These kinds of things, what signals we can get this, this idea of what's called interoception, which is listening to um, our body from the inside. And that's a skill that's that, that top athletes have top performers like musicians and actors and things like that also have. Right. It really requires being able to listen to and respond to the stress in our bodies. Um, so all of these things are helpful. And even just things like focus, right? How do you stay focused on, you know, the, 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 the cricket pitch when there's a million people screaming at once, right? Or, or how do you, you know, let go of the fact that you just missed the last kick and now it's time for another one. You can't let that emotion carry into the present moment. How do you just like keep letting that go, keep letting that go, you know, or other practices um, that, that help teammates really regulate their own minds and bodies. And then this, this, this term called co-regulation, which is when we get our, our nervous systems really aligned with the people around us, which happens just when we spend time with people, but we can deliberately do that. And that makes a team function even better or make a classroom function even better, which is to me is actually part of why there's been such a difficulty with online learning is people are not actually co-regulating in that same way when we're all online together, but we can then maybe bring some mindfulness to the online experience, um, but certainly in a classroom, certainly in, you know, an athletic competition, find ways to bring that co-regulation. Let's all breathe in together. Let's all breathe out together these kinds of things help synchronize everybody's minds and bodies so that we're more in touch with our teammates and more tuned into each other. And, and I think that can really help in that, that aspect of performance. Is that where parenting is, is, is so important in that if parents are able to uh, regulate themselves and they can kind of regulate the mood, the, the level of energy, so to speak, for example, um, or, or even, how much tension or, or, or slack there is in the room that kids regulate with them. You know, we, in, in some sense, parents help, you know, young people to, you know, organize their feelings or, you know, what, what, what work them through. Is that, is that kind of a bit of that co-regulation space or is it a particular type of practice? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is so important for kids and parents to learn how to co-regulate because kids, especially when they're young, they, they can't regulate themselves. Right. I mean, you think about, you know, or anyone listening, think about when they're, when they, you know, had a baby, you know, if they're a parent, right. That, that child absolutely cannot regulate, right. Their brain's not developed for that. What they need is that parent to be 
you know, looking them in the eyes, interacting with them, signals kind of actually about 20 different communications happening every second between a parent and an infant, right? And then also that baby starts to cry, right? What are the, what are the things that, you know, make it cry? Well, they're, you know, they're hungry or they're emotional or they want affection or they're tired or they, you know, so their diaper or something like that. And we start to learn their cries, right? And then we also, you know, what, what do we do? We, we pick them up, we give them a gentle hug, we talk to them softly, right? We, we do all of these things to regulate for them. We actually act, parents, good parents need to act as a regulation system because the child hasn't developed that yet. Over time, if we do a halfway decent job, we don't have to be perfect, that's the good news as a parent, right? We do a halfway decent job, the child then learns how to, how to regulate themselves over time. But the first many years of life are, are co-regulation between the parent and child before the child then internalizes those skills of how to, you know, what we'd call self-soothe. They're really like, you know, how to talk softly to themselves and how to, you know, give themselves some, some healthy kind of comfort that a, that a parent might provide. So, you know, that, that's that co-regulation. And it starts with the parent, right? Kids having a meltdown, you know, what is it that we do as a parent, right? Can we then keep ourselves calm in that situation? Or are we going to fly off the handle? And we all do that sometimes. You know, I do that sometimes, <laughs> right? Everyone does, right? But can we, you know, try to do a better job than our own parents maybe at not flying off the handle or walking out of the room and ignoring them or, you know, whatever, avoiding the situation, right? So that we're actually engaging with them, right? To help them to calm themselves down. But it starts with really regulating ourselves, keeping ourselves calm through that situation. And then the child can connect with us afterwards. That's what's really important in that co-regulation sphere. Yeah. What, what do you make of um, the co-regulation and uh, our tone and volume uh, of, 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 of conversation of speak? I'm, I'm a fairly energy sort of uh, filled guy. I, um, uh, you know, have a, uh, I don't know whether this is, this is part of it, but I have a Serbian uh, heritage you know, Eastern European, very loud, um, you know, around the dinner table type type scenario. Um, people might often think that we're arguing when we're, um, you know, agreeing on something. Um, uh, does that uh, affect regulation in, in, in terms of where we're a little bit less regulated because there's, there's greater excitability? Is, is volume and tone uh, a part of that or can we still hold that deliberate and intentional nature or does it tend to sort of get lost because of, you know, the, the, the intensity of volume, intensity of, of a, you know, rapid speech or um, you know, even, even tone? How, do those two worlds kind of conflict with each other a little bit? I think they can be. I mean, I think that we kind of end up wired with whatever it is that we grew up with is what feels comfortable. So, so oftentimes people that grew up in a chaotic environment, which is not to say that that's what your childhood was. I'll get back to your childhood in a minute. You know, I am a shrink, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, right, that, then, that that's what feels safe and normal to them. So then they continue to seek out, you know, a somewhat chaotic environment unconsciously, right. And kind of replicate those childhood experiences. Right. But then other people, I think, you know, there's not a right or a wrong and some families, some cultures, right, are bigger and louder and some are kind of smaller and, and quieter. 
And I think, you know, we, we grow up in that and then that also like that can feel regular and normal to, to us if that's what we grew up in, you know, if it's sort of like, you know, what, what's, and even, even, in, even when there's conflict, conflict itself this is one of the most interesting things I, I learned recently about families, right? You can have a high conflict family. It's not actually where you do a lot of arguing, but you still love each other, right? And, you know, a lot of cultures are like that, right? The, the important thing, if there's, if you get an argument with your partner or with your kids, that's, okay. that's, that's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you don't make the repair, right? So if the kids don't see you, then come back and be like, hey, sorry, I raised my voice at you. Or, or the partner doesn't come back and, you know, like give the, you know, give the husband or wife a hug or something like that, right? Like that's when, you know, it, it becomes confusing to grow up in that environment when you don't see the repair. So we can be loud and have conflict. And as long as we love each other and show that we can come back together, that's actually going to be really regulating for the kid. And in some ways, maybe better for that kid to be able to then see, oh, okay, people can be loud and disagree, but we can still love each other. That's actually a great message. My family was pretty quiet and now I'm pretty conflict averse. So, you know, maybe not, not so great to not have a loud family. So, you know, they all, they all have their own advantages and disadvantages as we grow up. It just strikes me that so many people who practice mindfulness uh, in a more deliberate way, you know, formal, formal way, end up being so, uh, so much more softly spoken. And maybe, maybe I'm sort of uh, 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 glorifying in my mind, you know, very specific people, and it's not quite, quite the case. But yeah, you know, there are just some people who, who, just the way they talk is, is, is almost you know, Zen-like, if I can use, use, use that language. Um, very sort of soft, extremely um, considered, uh, you know, uh, thought out, um, gentle, and, 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 and it oozes out, you know, and, and, and it's very, as you say, it's very contagious. Uh, and, and it just feels amazing to be around these people. You, you, you immediately start feeling centred yourself. You, you, you feel safe. Um, you know, you're in a good place. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, is that, is, that, is that a practice that, you know, we could ourselves um, uh, uh, improve on or, or, or work on? Is there maybe a... Uh, is part of that practice to, to, to intentionally be that way, to be you know, a softer person. Yeah, I think, I think mindfulness can really, in, in different kinds of contemplative practices, can really cultivate that sense of presence. And I think what, what you're really feeling when we're around those people is that cultivated presence and is that co-regulation. It's like they're bubbling over with so much mindfulness that, that it's like we can't help but, but catch it. Um, and, and, and that is something that over time, I think we can, we can start to really cultivate that ability to, to stay present with other people, to be present with ourselves, to be present with whatever's really going on. Ultimately, to me, that's, that's one of the big effects that, that a long time of practice can start to cultivate in people. Um, and I've certainly, you know, in my life, I, I you know, certainly met people like that. We're just around them and you just sort of feel that, that you know, that, that kind of vibe. And, and I think that is that, that co-regulation or some people have come up with this term uh, interpersonal neurobiology, where it's like, you know, that kind of way of being is infectious. And we feel, 
you know, one of the things I sometimes say to people is like, do you know what it's like to be around someone who's really present, right? You just feel like they're really listening to you. They're right there with you, right? Sometimes we call that charisma. Sometimes we can call that presence. And that really can be cultivated through mindfulness and, and through other um, compassion and, and interpersonal practices as well. I think we really can start to cultivate that, that quality of being. I think that is really possible. How important would you say is the, the formal practice, you know, sitting on the cushion and practicing you know, whatever it might be, calm abiding meditation, um, you know, forgiveness practices, whatever it might be. How, how important is, is, is the formal practice or formal setting? Um, I think a good balance is really important. And, um, you know, I would say I had a very strong formal sitting practice for many years. And then my son was born and didn't have a lot for a long time. And like really like three years ago, it just started to come back. And then my daughter was born and it kind of went out the window. And um, in the past few years, it's, it's kind of come, or excuse me, in the past few months, actually, it's really started to kind of come back again now that my daughter's a little bit older. Um, I think it's really important to have a balance. Um, I, I think finding that, it, it, to me, it's like going to the gym, you know, sitting in a formal practice. It's like going and like doing a workout for a half an hour, an hour where you're lifting weights or doing cardio, right? That's really important. But, you know, if you don't then use those muscles in real life, like what's the point, you know? So like you might as well, you know, like walk to work sometimes too and, and take the stairs instead of the elevator um, and, and things like that. And that's more of that informal practice. And that's where it really gets integrated into, into daily life. And I think starts to cultivate that, that quality of presence. Yeah. Can I ask you about your, your routine at the, at the moment, how, how much time you, you spend in, in that formal setting, obviously you're kind of only just going back into it now. Uh, you know, how often, how long, where, where do you go out of practice? Yeah, it depends a lot on my schedule. Um, often if I'm up before the kids, which is actually more, that's probably actually why I've been practicing more. I've been up a little bit more before the kids, um, like 20 minutes of sitting practice. Um, I sometimes focus on my breath. What I actually really like to focus on as an anchor of attention is um, just noticing sounds around me. Um, I find that to be a little bit more settling, probably actually because I had that sweet experience when I was a kid of listening to the sounds in the forest. Um, and then I try to bring it in, in some other ways. I try to, as a family, we try to practice some gratitude at night, um, talking about gratitude and what's going well in our days. And I, I try to get out every day and take a walk again with the pandemic. That's been a challenge, um, but spending some of that time doing, you know, not the like super slow mindful walking, but really trying to just be aware of the, the sensations in my, in my footsteps and that kind of thing. Um, and so each of these things I get to, I wouldn't say every day, but I'd say three to five times a week on a good week. Yeah. yeah. And what do you find personally difficult about uh, getting to practice? Because it's something that sounds like uh, uh, has featured quite strongly and then you know, life demands can't come in, children are born, you know, busy schedules. Well, what is it that you struggle with to, 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 that gets in the way of that, that formal practice that uh, 
you know, makes it difficult. But that, that seems to be the common thing, you know, whether it's someone trying to go to the gym or whether you know, someone wants to work on you know, eating a bit more healthy, having a salad each day or something, uh, or you know, mindfulness practice. What, 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 what are your struggles? I would say for me, it's, I, I've got a really inconsistent schedule, um, just the way that my schedule has evolved over the past few years. Some weeks I'm working 50 hours, some weeks I'm working 15 hours. Um, and, and I find that makes it really hard to get into a ritual and routine. Um, when my schedule was more nine to five, it was really easy to like, you know, right. Actually the, the example I often give is um, right after work, I'd get home, I'd go for a run for about a half an hour, then get home and then sit on my meditation cushion for about 20 minutes. And it was like, that was so easy. And one of the best ways I think to build a habit is to tie it to something else that's already in in your routine that's already an existing habit. So I get home from work at the same time every day and then I just go for a run every day and then I know that I always meditate after I do my run. And so that made it really easy. Now that my my routine is totally upended, it's a lot more difficult. Um, When I go to my office, which I do a few times a week right now, I go and I do Zoom calls from my office. Ironically, I'm the only one there, um, right? That That's often where I'll take a longer walk in the middle of the day um, because I'll often have a lot of space between between seeing people. And so that, that tends to be um, like to do a, a mindful walk during that time. And then I've got a group of people that I sit with, usually Thursday evenings. Um, and we do a little discussion group around our meditation practice and having other people again, kind of like going to the gym or going for a run. It's like easier to say you want to go for a run than it is to get yourself out there or easier to say want to meet up at the gym, right? Than it is to just try to drag our own self to the gym. So when we have other people that we're accountable to, especially a group, that can be really helpful as well. Yeah. Yeah. When I don't have time to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. When you're tying the new habit to, to an existing habit, do you know if it's better to do it before or, or, or after? Is it kind of a little bit easier because you've already started the run and it ties in after that versus starting a meditation before you go for, for, for a run? Is, is one better than the other? Or, or in your experience, have you um, noticed anything? Yeah, for me, definitely afterwards is, is easier. Um because it's like I sort of done my one thing that I'm already doing and then I just kind of roll into the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a lot more effective. What's a good way with boost our brain so we can actually focus better after we exercise. <laughs> so you get a little bit of a brain burst, which is, which helps with the meditation practice too. What's a good way for, for, um, people getting into that formal side to, to, to start. Um, you know, sometimes you hear things like, you know, just start with, you know, a couple of minutes or even five minutes or, um, you know, what, 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 what's an easy way to, to, to get started for um, those who, who I suppose want to taste it uh, or, or, yeah, maybe even go further into it, <clears throat> but is an easy, easy way to access it quickly. Yeah, I think starting small. Um you know, again, to go back to the exercise metaphor, like they say, like, you know, just, just put on your, just put on your running shoes, you know, and then walk around the block or something to start, you know, likewise, you know, there's been times that I've really struggled with getting back to my practice. And I had a teacher say, 
you know, try just, you know, sitting on your meditation cushion for one minute, you know, put it in a prominent place where you won't forget it. You got to stumble over it in the morning or something like that and, and sit down on it for one minute or for 10 breaths. Right. That's a nice way to begin. Again, before I had kids, I used to do a friend of mine suggested just do 15 breaths in the morning, like eyes open. I don't have anywhere to be right now. I'm just going to really feel my breath for about 15 breaths. And then I shifted that actually for myself to notice 15 sounds. And then I would get out of bed. And that was a really nice way to start the morning. And then that also, you know, helps me then get onto my meditation cushion a little bit later in the day. Um, so that's, that's where I'd start, start small, start with five minutes. I wouldn't even start with 20 minutes, see how that goes. Start with guided practices. I really think it's helpful to, you know, go on insight timer, you know, download an app or, you know, watch a YouTube video or, you know, download something from iTunes that guides you through it. You know, listening to John Kabat-Zinn guide you through a mountain meditation or something like that. That's a lot easier than setting a, an egg timer for yourself for 20 minutes and trying to focus on your breath. So I think visualizations are a really good place to start also. And, uh, and doing something guided by someone else can really make a difference too. So really in, in any way that that's very easy, accessible, you know, it's a good starting, starting spot. As you were talking about the breaths, I was thinking, and maybe I could just do some breaths in the shower. I'm already in the shower. You know, I'm, 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 I'm you know, my mind works in this, uh, um, interesting, you know, uh, economy of time uh, way things are going to be efficient. I'm like, well, if I'm having a shower, I could do some breaths. I'm, I'm, I'm doing two things at once. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably not a good environment to do mindfulness, <laughs> but uh, uh, in some way, I suppose I could still be still um, as a starting, as a, as a starting space, you know, to, to maybe just notice the water running running down my, 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 my head or face or something like that and, and start, yeah. start there. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually shower is great because to me, the other thing, our, our senses are phenomenal because our, our senses are always in the present moment, right? Our thoughts go off to the future. Our thoughts go off to the past, but we keep coming back to, you know, the smell of the soap, the sound of the running water, the, the sensations of the water flowing off of us, the, the taste of the, the, the fog, the, the, you know, kind of steam in the air, right? You know, all of these things about, you know, taking a shower, right? All of those are so sensory and our senses keep, you know, like mind wanders off, just bring it back to the sound of the shower. Mind wanders off, just bring it back to the sensations of the water. Um, and it can be a really, really helpful way to, to practice. Yeah. yeah. What do we know about the origins of, of mindfulness? I mean, obviously no one owns uh, mindfulness or, you know, consciousness or being deliberate, being thoughtful. Uh, what do we know about the origins? Is is this something that that, that uh, you know, just certain groups have practiced uh, different stages in in life? It kind of seems like you know there's only a subset in in, in the world that continues to to, to, to do these things. But you know, consciously, we all know about it. Uh, well, not consciously, um, we've certainly heard about it in, in most. I'm, I'm assuming in all Western Western cultures. Um, at the present moment, anyway, you know, keep, things just keep like they're like they're always shifting. What do we know historically about you know, uh, how 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 this practice came into existence, or was formalized, or you know became something that you know, pe people um, gravitated towards? Yeah, I think that um, you know it, it's 
you know, the, I mean, a lot of the ones that we have now in North America, Europe, um, Australia, and actually I, I do a lot of work in South America too, right? A lot of these did originate um, the particular stream of mindfulness that we have now um, through different Eastern traditions, right? A lot coming out of the Buddhist tradition, a lot of people, you know, kind of after, you know, the, the colonial conflicts in the 20th century, right? A lot of people, you know, the Dalai Lama had to flee, you know, after World War II and China came into Tibet um, and brought these practices with him. Thich Nhat Hanh, right? It was, you know, he had to leave because of the Vietnam War and he moved to France and then started sharing these practices in the West and influenced people like um, John Kabat-Zinn, um, who was also influenced, for example, by, um, gosh, I'm blanking on his name, a, a, a Korean monk who had to flee um, Korea during the Korean conflict. So, you know, a lot of people came and brought these practices to the West. And, and a lot of the practices that are popularized now have evolved out of those, those particular traditions. And yet at the same time, I think we can probably recognize elements of these mindfulness practices in just simple things like, you know, the fact that we've all watch clouds appear and disappear in the sky. The fact that we've all, you know, gazed into, you know, a river and just watched it flow and just kind of settled in um, or, or seen examples of, of meditative practices and contemplative practices in Christianity and Judaism um, and Islam and, and a lot of other, you know, more Western hemisphere religions. So I think these things all kind of came together and also, you know, came together with, with psychology to some extent too. Yeah. Hmm. Chris, I'm mindful of time. I know that you've got to jump on a jump on a call shortly. Where can people find out more about about your work? I know that you do lots of training. Uh, you've got, got you know online courses. Um, you know you go around the world and and, and do workshops. How how can people find out more about you, your work, um, yeah, and med, 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 meditation and, and mindfulness in general? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I. Yeah, I do a lot of, uh, yeah, in normal times, I do a lot of travel. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually kind of hoping to get to, to Australia next July. We'll see what happens. Um, but uh, my website, drchristopherwillard.com, often has some of my scheduled trainings in it. Um, I'm more likely to be updating things um, on my social media, though, and, and probably most actively on Instagram, where it's just at Dr. Chris Willard, Dr. Chris Willard um, is where you can find me um, on Instagram. So um, yeah, please, please check me out those places. And if folks have any questions, feel free to email me and um, check out my books online or, or in bookstores and, and please stay in touch. Yeah. Thank you. Fantastic. Fantastic. Let me know when you are scheduled to come, come to Australia. Happy to uh, give you a bit of a plug as well on my <laughs> social media and, and, and let people know about, you know, where, where you'll be coming. I know that uh, you've been, you know, to, to, to pretty well all, all the uh, capital cities of, of each of the states um, uh, around, around Australia. So um, let, definitely let us know and maybe we can catch up for a coffee as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Definitely. Thank you. Fantastic. Appreciate it, Chris. Uh, thank you for all your time, and um, hopefully we can get through this COVID time and uh, see you see you on the uh, uh, on, on the shores of Cam of Canberra, <laughs> sorry, shores of Australia, and then maybe a trip to Canberra as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Be safe. All right. Thanks, Chris.